John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 786.ZC0508, certificate number 25185, Thomas Midgley. So, in the early days of the automobile, there were still a lot of problems kind of uh, perfecting the internal combustion engine. Cars were not reliable for decades. Like, there was this whole culture of people pulled over to the side of these dirt roads, patching a tire twice a day. Yeah, steam coming out of the radiator. We're, you know, people working in their alleys on their new jalopy. Perhaps it's what our future listeners are used to transportation-wise. Yeah, well, I think in the future, right, they're just pouring garbage into the flux capacitor of their DeLoreans. No, right? they got Mad Max muscle cars with guitarists on the front. Yeah. We, we don't know. We don't know who we're talking to car culture wise. Yeah. They're all skateboarders, I bet. Or using segues that don't have handlebars. <laughs> we finally evolved balance for a handlebarless Segway. Evolution finally caught up. I always felt that the big mistake of segues was they put those stupid handlebars on them. If they had introduced them initially as like X game style cool kids sports things, we would all be on segways now. Because they do have those now. You see, I mean, here in Seattle, you see people ambling down the sidewalk on their weird one-wheeled contraptions. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, obviously still, there's a little bit of a nerd stigma to them. I mean, you never see somebody go by on one of those where your feeling is necessarily. This guy doesn't work at Amazon. <laughs> that's the raddest person I ever saw. Most of the time you're like, whoa, that still is pretty cool. He, he has that, <laughs> but it's the coolest thing about him. <laughs> but so cars were uh, a nightmare, basically. Yeah, well, and, and Americans have always been tinkerers, uh, and there was an aspect of uh, tinkering. Yeah, that's a funny idea that a car was a hobby item. Mm -hmm. It wasn't uh, something that every family had as a utility. It was something that your weird dad bought before he got into ham radio or bird watching or something. Right. Even as late as 1908, the vast majority of people were still in horse-drawn carriages and carriage making was still kind of a, a major industry. In fact, Flint, Michigan uh, was a carriage building like center long time before it became an auto like corporate town. It was where carriages were made. That's a hopeful sign for Flint in the future that they might uh, emerge with some third wave of well, they may be segue makers transit technology <laughs> eventually. But then 1908 was kind of a watershed moment, right? That was the introduction of the Model T, 
and it was also the incorporation of the General Motors company. General Motors acquired Buick. They quickly, all these little sort of craft makers, Buick and Cadillac and so forth, they, they assimilated all these small auto companies and formed this large corporation making cars. And I assume the Model T as, as kind of the first mass-produced, mass-popular car, was it also inexpensive? Was it, was it more uh, affordable and uh, attainable to the common man? Yeah, less so. I mean, less expensive, right? When the Model T was introduced, I think there were like 8,000 privately owned cars in total. Wow. And they're uh, probably made by like 800 different uh, companies, right? Like, yeah, right. Everybody's just like putting them together. Everybody's bicycle shop has been modified to make a weird boutique car. And interestingly, electric cars were invented at the time and were sort of just as functional as gasoline-powered cars. Yeah, like yeah, electric electricity and steam were both an option. Right. It's just some accident of history that sends us down the I think I think there were reliability problems with a lot of these things battery life and such that made fossil fuels the way to go. But that kind of locked us into the 20th century we got. Right. And and the and early car companies, General Motors in particular, like made alliances with Standard Oil such that it did feel a little bit like a trust. They ha- they made a universal decision and Goodyear, right? Making rubber tires. Like it all, they all were working together. It was all cigar smoking men in, in dark rooms that yeah. gave us the 20th century. With big lapel double-breasted jackets. If not for Goodyear, what would the tires have been made of though? Like what were the other, was there a, a guy making bamboo, but uh, mm-hmm. he just didn't write a big enough check to Henry Ford? Yeah. For his, for his uh, bamboo tires. Interesting. Maybe bubble gum. <laughs> Potato starch tires. <laughs> I don't even know what. So these initial cars had a lot of sort of uh, problems trying to get the thing off the ground. There were fuel availability and quality problems. And one of the major problems with the early mass-produced internal combustion engines was a thing called knocking, engine knocking. And this existed until... I mean, in my own life, engines would knock. Sure. You got to uh, take it in. It's not something's wrong. It's knocking. It's pinning. It's pinging. Pinging, right. Are those different, knocking and pinging? Well, there's there are a couple of things. There's something called pre-ignition, which is where um, the fuel and air mixture in an engine is igniting by virtue of the heat of some hot spot or some like problem within the motor there, it's igniting before the spark plug fires. Uh, So it's igniting when it's not supposed to. It's igniting when it's not supposed to. Now that's also true of knocking or pinning. The fuel air mixture is igniting at the wrong time. And it's not, it's not that it's igniting before the spark. It's igniting not at the optimal moment in the rotation of the, the, of the motor, right? There's a there's a perfect moment in an internal combustion engine where the fuel and air mixture is is compressed at the peak second where the explosion is going to generate the most energy through the piston. And if it happens bo- a little bit before or a little bit after, it's kind of like a tennis racket hitting a ball not in the sweet spot. And this is something that you can fix or address not just with engine design, but actually with fuel quality, right? Like right. higher octane fuels or whatever address these problems or... Yes, higher octane fuel, you can do... Additives you or, can change the timing of the of the, your spark ignition with your distributor. There are a lot of different solutions to it. But uh, in the early days of trying to solve this problem, one of the no, easiest and, and simplest solutions was to just introduce ethanol into the fuel. Ethanol is basically just alcohol. It's the same exact stuff that's in vodka. Right. 
and super easy to produce, super cheap. And you put it in there and it, it boosts the, the octane, a little bit of the gas, and it's sort of a knocking solution. So this thing you see in movies where some hillbilly dumps a, a jug of his pot liquor into the car engine and it starts to go, and then he gets some kind of turbo charge, like that's actually based on a true story. It is. And in fact, uh, in our present day, futurelings, the, the early 21st century, uh, ethanol is again a very fashionable fuel additive. I assumed we were just propping up corn farmers through all kinds of corrupt political uh, maneuvering. Well, I mean, in Brazil, ethanol is actually like a big, like 25% of the gasoline is, is ethanol. Here in the United States and in Europe, it's limited to about 10%. Ethanol isn't a perfect gasoline equivalent. It's about one and a half parts ethanol achieves the same amount of joules or whatever combustion strength as regular gasoline. Uh, but you can add it and mix it and, and normal engines will burn this, this mixture. And there are actually ethanol only fuels, uh, cars. You can, you can modify a car to just run on corn. Just run on pure corn gasoline. And the advantage of course, is that at least if you discount the vast land and water and fertilizer required to grow all this corn and hemp. Hemp. You can make ethanol out of a lot of things. Oh, wow. So uh, you can have like cannabis friendly yeah, engines. It's basically just the fermented sugar of, of these plants. And corn is a very sugary plant. And getting sugary and sugarier in our lifetime. Yeah. They, I, feel, they, I feel like sweet corn today is like as sweet as Kool-Aid was when I was a kid. Con Agra or whatever is trying to really, really put, you know, bump up the the tastiness of corn. We're speaking to future people who like have, are eating now corn that's like 85% sugar. Well, and corn that's gigantic, right? So each kernel is actually a meal. That's right. Uh, and I'm sure that Con Agra is basically the... The government. <laughs> the only, yeah, the only corporation. Somewhere in the future. Futurelings, I'm sorry if uh, if speaking about ConAgra this way is some kind yeah, of... Yeah, is, is ConAgra a god to you? Yeah. Are we now running afoul of your <laughs> blasphemy laws? We apologize. Uh, I'm sure ConAgra has long ago thrown this, this particular episode of Omnibus in the hopper. Please remember, we were a product of our time. But in the early days of General Motors, a part of this collusion between these men with cigars was a recognition that ethanol as an additive gave them almost no profit opportunity because it's just alcohol. You can find it anywhere. You can make it anywhere. And they wanted an anti-knocking additive that also was exclusive to them because this is how American capitalism works. You want a product that you can copyright that no one else has uh, access to. Sure. You want Tecron. Tecron, right. <laughs> or uh, what's the stuff that Certs always had? Retzin. Retzin. You know, even if you're just making breath mints, you want to give the idea that your laboratory has produced <laughs> some amazing new chemical breakthrough that has better breath freshening powers. Retzin, I've never seen that on the periodic Retzin, table. how do I get it? How does one synthesize Retzin? I need it. I need it. It makes one more virile. It, make, it means that you can fly. Sure, so you put it in the ad once you make up a fun name for your thing. Right, and that is exactly what happened here. There was a sort of a laboratory, like a research element to General Motors early on, and they had some scientists there that were try trying to solve problems. And in our contemporary time, if there's a problem that needs a solution, we generally just send some recent college graduates to their computers to develop an app to solve it. But 
at the time, in the early 20th century, there were still real problems to solve. Problems. Physical problems. You needed a guy with a white coat mixing things in beakers. Right. Or some, or a machinist like building a a part that was going to, you know, save us work. There was a, a new washing machine or a blender or a radio. I hope that our future listeners are again living in a time where, uh, actual innovation is possible where so much has been lost yeah. that it's not just, Hey, you can combine the front of this app with the back of this app. And now uh, your refrigerator knows the temperature in your uh, <laughs> stove or and whatever. You can check it when you're on vacation. But so uh, a man named Thomas Midgley was a scientist, uh, a chemist who worked at this laboratory that was part of General Motors. And Midgley realized that if you put lead a common compound, or a com- I'm sorry, a common element, if you put lead into gasoline fuels, it affected knocking. It changed the explosive quality of the gasoline enough that it was a knocking suppressant. I've read that he uh, started with iodine because huh. he thought making the gas red would make it burn hotter. So obviously... Huh. Maybe not the sharpest knife in the drawer, even if this guy's got a white jacket. Well, you know, back in the day, you tried everything, right? Right. Edison, that's, that's, it's all trial and error, yeah. man. Edison said it was an uh, 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And Edison did the same thing, trying to find the right filament for his light bulb. He's trying camel hair and llama hair, and, you know, he's just trying thousands of different filaments. And this was all part of this age of invention. Midgley comes up with this lead additive. Just by working his way up the periodic table, I think. He, yeah, you know, right. he tried he started with gold. He tried every other element. <laughs> he started with hydrogen. And, and lead actually like solved the problem, much to his surprise, I'm sure. Yeah, and it was realized that, oh, they could make this into a gasoline additive that was proprietary. It wouldn't be just enough some guy sitting on the side of the road with steam coming out of his motor couldn't just throw some powdered lead in his gas and solve the problem. And it was already for many centuries understood that lead was a toxic poison. But yeah, I'm sure the knowledge of that must go back to, I don't know what, like the Romans, our word for plumbing comes from, you know, PB, plumbus or whatever, the word for lead. Right. So people must have known for years that, you know, there's downsides to having your water supply come through lead. I think maybe lead plumbing remained a mystery to people, uh, that there was a lot of effect of it, but they continue to use lead in plumbing until recent memory. Sure. I think the understanding that lead was toxic might have uh, been a side effect of alchemy. Trying All these guys uh, trying to turn lead into gold uh, all got lead poisoning. And they wonder why their hands are, their lead hand is turning green <laughs> and falling off. <laughs> and I, probably at first they thought maybe God uh, was intervening. Because God didn't want there to be... (laughs) Please don't meddle in my affairs. (laughs) Right. I will make the gold. I'll put the gold in the hills. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can 
get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. But there, anyway, there's been a, a long history of understanding that lead was poison. And the car companies were just like, well, what could go wrong? Well, they thought that adding it to gasoline, it was, it was going to have a negligible effect, but they knew that it wouldn't be popular. So, <laughs> uh, so although the compound itself was called tetraethyl lead, they renamed it ethyl. They left off tetra and lead. Right, but they made it sound really close to ethanol. Like ethyl is not ethanol at all. It's a it's a copyrighted name of this lead, basically like powdered lead. It's funny that in our time when you fill up a car, you know, the cheapest option is still called unleaded. Right. A relic of a time when ethyl gas was the norm. I'm, well, I'm jumping ahead a little here. But it's. I think a lot of people might get the wrong idea that that's because gas just comes out of the ground with lead. And that the nice service stations have been removing the lead for you. They've been unleading it. Right. And it's that's like, not true at all, it's right? It's like decaffeinated coffee <laughs> right. where you go, whoa, wow, I guess it must have a lot of caffeine coming from the plant. So they really, it never had lead. Gas shouldn't have lead. Gas does not have lead. Jeez. Lead was added. And when I was a young person and uh, when I was a kid, there was only leaded gas. Yeah. I uh, still remember regular and unleaded and my parents putting in regular because it was cheaper. Right. And that happened in the late seventies where we started adding catalytic converters, which were, you know, were taking some of the pollutants out of gasoline. And then by the eighties, there was unleaded gas, which was, which you could only burn in certain cars. You couldn't put unleaded right. gas in an old car. Our Pinto needed regular. Yeah. That's funny that the thing that led to this was the invention of the catalytic converter where lead screws up, I guess, the chemistry of that somehow. So the car and the gas companies didn't start taking lead out of gas because of the amazing toxicity and the health threat. They just wanted their new gadgets to work smoother. Well, there was a recognition finally on the part of the EPA. Uh, you know, the, the American government and governments around the world were like, wait a minute, this is creating a toxic world. This, I assume the government played nice with them for many years, though, since there was 60 years of lead in gas. Well, I mean... I assume the right people got the right donations. There's a famous saying that what's good for General Motors is good for America. <laughs> and there just wasn't a sense, we didn't have a sense at the time that pollution was something that we could really affect. I mean, this is during an era when smokestacks around the country were just just sending coal into the sky. You remember toxic rain where whole forests in the east uh, of America were dying. The forests were dying from just the effects of heavy metals in pollution. And this is in, again, in the 70s. Sure. Uh, in, 80s. In, yeah, just 50 years ago, people's brains worked fundamentally differently. They didn't have this constant governor we have of like, how are my actions affecting the planet? They lived in this sort of blissful ignorance where the world was just, just the universe was a massive sponge that could absorb any amount of litter, people would just, you know. Because until recent times at that point, the world still had great portions that were unexplored and seemed like the earth was unlimited. Sure, there were. When did the world's population pass 1 billion? Well, that's a good question. I think it was in the 20th century, wasn't it? 
Yeah. I mean, we're now at 7 billion. Okay, it was it was 1 billion at the beginning of the 19th century. Oh, okay. But it didn't hit 2 billion until like the 20s. Wow. All right. So it took us 100 years to double. And the, then the 2 billionth human might still be alive today in our time, although he would be 90. I would like to meet he or she uh, 2 billionth. Because Mr. Two Billion, I'm probably the five billionth person, and kid born today would be. Yes. I, I'm probably the third three billionth. Baby eight billion is coming up, and of course, we're probably talking to a world population of you know three hundred thousand. Yeah, or, right. or, three hundred thousand or three hundred billion. That's possible too. <laughs> living in some massive superstructure that extends out past the orbit of the moon. Uh, so anyway, Midgley develops this lead additive, and it's hugely successful with General Motors. And with the oil companies, and I mean, it was all like, hey, we can make a ton of money. Uh, Midgley was given a, an award by the American Chemical Society. He was a hero in his time. He did, very shortly, develop a severe case of lead poisoning. Really? From working with the lead, he poisoned himself. Well, I saw that, you know, when he was challenged on the possible toxicity of his invention, he would just pour ethyl gas on his hands and be like, I'm not worried. Look at me. He would put his face down into a big jar of this, of lead. <laughs> and blow, not, and not, blow bubbles? Yeah. And just be like, check it out and take big, deep breaths. Well, he poisoned himself. And uh, eventually, like, he lost his position uh, on the General Motors lead program. Sure. Losing 65 IQ points will do that to you, probably. But he still was in the employ of General Motors. And as General Motors and Standard Oil and DuPont, uh, eventually it transferred to DuPont to make this material. DuPont, who is a sort of a famous company in our, a famous chemical company in our time that made some other great things like Agent Orange and... Um, Just fa famous for making evil things. Yeah, although they make probably plenty of wonderful things. I'm sure too. they make Teflon and stuff too. I'm sure the table we're sitting at is made out of something made by DuPont. But the Google mantra, don't be evil, is actually a, a takeoff of the DuPont official motto, <laughs> be evil. Be evil. Make evil chemicals. <laughs> at the DuPont factory, uh, employees were dying of lead poisoning Jeez. and and uh, getting like mental illness as a result of lead poisoning to such a degree that the state of New Jersey said that they could no longer manufacture this product in the entire state of New Jersey. When you're too toxic for New Jersey. <laughs> exactly. Of any U.S. state. Wow. Uh, and they, they, they had a real problem with manufacturing this where employees did not hallucinate, go insane, and die. Like on their first day, probably. Right. So the, Midgley was kind of forced out in a corporate reorg uh, after having been given all these tremendous awards for the development of this product. And as we say, this, the, this was happening in the late teens, early 20s. We continued to have lead additives in gas until our lifetimes. Yeah, I think 86, maybe? Yeah, the 80s. So Midgley kind of bouncing around, still uh, working for General Motors or working for a lab that's part of the General Motors enterprise. Still putting a big spoonful of lead in his coffee every morning. <laughs> Having recuperated in Florida from his lead poisoning adventures, multiple lead poisoning adventures, one of the other companies owned by General Motors was Frigidaire, the maker of refrigerators. And refrigerants and coolants were also a new technology. We were trying to 
trying to solve this problem of how do you keep things cool? How do you keep food cool? Is a guy going to bring a big block of ice to your house once a week? That's, that's typically that's, the way, that's, right? That's middle-class America for, you know, as recently as the early 20th century. Sure. They would go cut ice out of lakes and then store them in warehouses covered with straw. Yeah, like sawdust somehow keeps ice from melting. I never mm-hmm. understood this, but I guess it does. It does, long enough that, that even in the summer, you can have the ice man come and deliver a block of ice. I assume you lose a lot of ice, like some melting happens. You just make sure you cut big enough chunks that there's still some left in July. Yeah, as time goes on, right? You're not going to, you don't just wheel out all the ice that you, you dropped in there. There was actually a project uh, in our own time where someone was going to lasso an iceberg. Oh, right. And bring it down and like sell it as like, it. yeah, like super ice for cocktails or whatever. <laughs> anyway, so Frigidaire was, there were, again, people in labs working with chemicals, trying uh, camel hair filaments, uh, looking for a solution to this refrigeration problem. Machines were going to transform our society the argument at the time was that all these labor-saving devices were going to give uh, middle-class people a lot more leisure time because you wouldn't be ironing your sheets all day on Wednesday. You wouldn't be hang- hanging wash out to dry. You wouldn't have to can all your food to keep it through the winter. Yeah, think of all the just life-changing, labor-saving things that actually happened around that time, you know? Uh dishwashers and washing machines. Yeah, people were doing all this by hand. Yeah. And that would be just eight hours of your day. And plus, heating your home and these things that we think of as basic aspects of modern society. I mean, flush toilets, indoor plumbing. These sure. were innovations. Most of our time-saving innovations today are so minimal, right? Like, hey, this will combine two cycles of your dishwasher right. or something, you know? Well, and the astonishing thing is all these labor-saving machines Saved us zero labor. I mean, everyone still works. The expectation is that you work a 40-hour week, that you go to work in the morning in your car, and you come home at night and have a couple of hours before your kids go to sleep. I guess sociologically what it did was it put women in the workforce, right? You didn't have half your population scrubbing uh, undies on a, on a washboard all day. Right, although it didn't really increase what you would think of as actual production of happiness. It didn't, yeah, it didn't make... It put women in the workforce to handle an additionally large workflow or work need, which was largely shuffling papers around. I mean, if you think about what work looked like for people from 1968 on... There was a lot of busy work. Right. Not Even in white-collar jobs. Quite a bit less washing and ironing and quite a bit more pushing push carts full of paper up and down aisles and taking stuff out of people's outboxes. Putting things in pneumatic tubes. So Frigidaire is trying to solve this refrigeration problem because that is really going to revolutionize how people live. But the early components of what of refrigerants, the early stuff that they used that actually would cool a space down, were all made out of very volatile and explosive components, including ammonia and propane, and sulfur dioxide, this stuff that would, if you got a leak in your refrigerator, it could poison you or it could cause your refrigerator to explode. And this is, uh, I assume they work sort of like heat pumps today. You put this stuff under pressure and it evaporates or condenses or whatever. And in that phase change, it lowers temperature. It lowers temperature. And you can blow that air into a box full of 
milk. That concept was was developed. It was just how do we... What's, what's the most efficient thing to squeeze to make that coolness produced? Right. And what's something that won't kill us? And so Frigidaire was owned by General Motors. Uh, General Motors had become one of those American corporations that bought and sold other companies uh, as part of just a corporate diversification strategy. Which and, turned out to be a great thing for our society with no downsides. Yeah, it was it was really amazing. In fact, General Motors got into the financial services uh, business for a while, selling, and I think even now, selling, I don't know, money. And uh, unfortunately, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but let's jump ahead to 2009 when General Motors, the largest uh, car manufacturer and one of the largest corporations on the planet, went bankrupt as a result of the financial crash and had to be bailed out by the U.S. government to the tune of between 30 and $50 billion. So we now know that what's bad for General Motors is also bad for America. Right. But at the time, things were really booming for General Motors, and they were asking themselves, how do we get a better refrigerant that isn't also uh, like a poisonous gas or a kind of napalm? And so <laughs> who was the hero of the laboratories but Thomas Midgley? And they set him at this project, you know, a great chemist that had been awarded. He's got awards on his wall, office wall and his desk. He does. He's a big shot. His uh, pocket protector only has fountain pens in it. And uh, Midgley starts to work on this concept. And he came up with the idea of introducing fluorine, fluoride, into uh, a hydrocarbon. And it created a chlorofluorocarbon which we call a CFC. Which we think of as a boogeyman. And this was the first one. And they named it Freon, which is what we all know. Freon is like a great refrigerant and we all had Freon kind of in everything. Is it supposed to convey neon? It's some kind of magic colorful gas, but it freezes? It's Freon. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely it's right. It's freeze plus because neon? Because neon was very popular at the time too. It also seemed like an innovation, a uh, like a forward-looking technology. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So Freon uh, worked really well. They pumped it into refrigerators, but they also started using it in a lot of other situations, including aerosol cans. And the Freon in aerosol cans became a real bugbear in our lifetimes. Well, that's because we came from a generation that used a ton of hairspray. We did. The 1980s use of hairspray was so widespread that it created an ozone hole over the continent of Antarctica, right? Yes. That if our hair had, if our high school 
girlfriend's hair had not been quite so tall. <laughs> That's exactly right. Our like love of the multi-useful product, again, made by DuPont. Thanks, DuPont. Uh, of Freon uh, ended up burning a hole in our ozone layer. And, and, and one of the earliest examples of a thing that we recognized, we were changing our own environment. We were affecting our climate. I mean, you remember the ozone hole was over Antarctica and was supposedly going to keep... It was going to let in cosmic rays and mutate all the penguins into carnivorous psychopenguins or something. And was going to expand and expand and expand until until our atmosphere, our ozone, yeah. was completely uh, depleted. Which would threaten human life. Ozone keeps us safe from all kinds of crazy space particles. Right. So Midgley... Having built Freon or having developed and discovered Freon was again flooded with accolades. He was, I mean, the number of trophies on his mantle went to infinity at this point. I would like to think that he guzzled Freon when he was called on its possible toxicity. <laughs> this stuff's great. I gargle with it every morning. I <laughs> use it as shampoo. <laughs> and so here he was again. And, and in this culture of invention, of the first part of the 20th century. Like this guy had solved two insoluble problems. Uh, and this is the uh, the new science, you know, right. when, when humanity has a problem, we just build a new molecule that will solve it. Everything's going to be fine now. That's right. There is a solution. Better living through chemistry Absolutely. was the DuPont motto. And uh, there just was not any knowledge or, or, uh, at first, no understanding, and then later, no acknowledgement of the fact that these chemicals actually had reverberative effects globally. What were those effects? Are we talking about lead or freon here? Well, both things. And, and uh, both things ended up being part of a government project to regulate these chemicals and part of the, the expanding purview of the American federal government in the 70s and 80s, where we recognized these companies understood that these chemicals were having this effect within their labs and then eventually, you know, within their the larger corporate understanding of what they were making, but they didn't want to stop doing it because it was too profitable. To this day, I don't know if we really fully understand the scope of a lot of what happened. I mean, sure, there's a, there was a hole over Antarctica, but um, I think recently there's a lot of work linking atmospheric lead to all kinds of problems in America, and not just health problems, but up to and including crime. Hmm. Do you know about this research? You know, the, the average American's blood level, blood lead level, is down 75%. From what it was. From what it was when you and I were children. And so there was multiple generations of Americans growing up in this lead-happy world. And of course, lead is terrible for you. You know, it, uh, it's well known that it lowers, when it's exposed to kids, it lowers IQ, it creates, uh, you know, all kinds of violence and other problems. And uh, it's, not, it's not well understood why American crime peaked around 1990. There's all these theories. Right. You know, was it uh, better policing or... Uh, these, the, the, the broken windows theory. Right. Did Giuliani somehow do it with his superpowers? <laughs> the Freakonomics guys are all about how it's Roe v. Wade. All the poor kids right. that would have been stealing liquor stores got aborted instead. It's a, <laughs> right. it's a very odd theory. Um, but we were headed, uh, it felt like we were headed to an escape from New York style uh, dystopia. Where all the inner cities were crime-filled wastelands. And there is, there's a theory that that's connected to, well, because there isn't that much atmospheric lead. It's not a thing that, 
under normal circumstances without human contribution, we wouldn't be breathing and chewing on lead. Sure. A tiny bit, it turns out, is enough to make a big difference. And it, it, it was four times what it should be, basically. And, you know, when crime peaked in U.S. cities around 1990, it's now down, by the way. Americans are in surveys constantly say that crime is at an all-time high. Yeah. And that's not true. Crime in New York City is down 75% from what it was in 1990. And that's mirrored in all major cities. Wow. And it turns out if you study the timing of where crime goes up and down in different countries, in different states, in different cities, and in one study in New Orleans, even on the neighborhood level, you can see exact links to lead contamination. Wow. To the lead toxicity in different areas and when different places actually ban the stuff. Well, and and during this same era, I mean, lead was not, lead exposure was not just limited to fuel because paint, uh, house paint and all sorts of paint um, was also like full of lead. Lead was sort of a tint that could be used to uh, cause or, or make paint that was sort of yellow or a better white. Yeah, uh, lead, lead white was, I think, a still a kind of a paint we used as kids, which yeah. I'm sure we should not have been. Uh, it made paint dry faster. It made paint stronger. It made, you know, it, it uh, resisted moisture. It just made paint a lot better. And until 1978, when, again, the U.S. government intervened and started to say, like, you can't have lead in paint. Uh, most paint had lead. And so if you're living in futurelings in a apartment building or house that was built before 1978 in our own era, uh, which you probably are given the housing crisis. Yeah. You're probably, a lot of you are in 10,000 year old houses. I'm (laughs) sorry about that. But there's a, there, there was a lot of problem of lead contamination because kids were, I mean, chewing on the little kids were chewing on the, on the trim. Paint chips would come off the wall and kids would, some toddler would stick it in their mouth. But even though paint does get a lot of the uh, media attention, I think the leaded gas in the air, you know, car exhaust was the bigger, the bigger thing problem. Yeah. 68 million young American children between 1927 and 1987 had toxic levels of lead in their blood. 68 million people. That's incredible. Considering what lead does to your mind and, and body. Sure. And, you know, we have this 20th century association of crime with urban areas, right? And that's often deployed to political effect. But if lead is the real culprit, you can see why it's worse in urban areas. Right. There's just more cars driving around. Right. Making the young kids sicker. So they, uh, in the 1980s, I guess, everyone was concerned about the coming of a second, ba- the children of the baby boomers would finally be at peak criminal age. You know, all the, all the young men would be at, you know, early 20s, the age when juvenile delinquents do their crimes. Right. And there was this, all this fear that a wave of juvenile super predators would be washing over America's cities in the 80s and 90s. And instead, crime kept dropping throughout the 90s. The juvenile super predators did nothing, I assume because they had been raised on, for the first time, lead-free gas. Right. And they weren't crazies. So you think about the effect of what one guy can have. You know, when, we th- when you think about cautionary tales of scientists, it's all these Oppenheimer types who made something flashy. Who hath become death. Sure. Hey, good news, guys. Uh, I've become death destroyer worlds. I'm going to put it in the weekly memo. Going to put it in the break room. Have you ever seen a video of Oppenheimer actually speaking those words? There's a video of Oh, he's like, he's recorded doing it? He is sitting there and he said, and Oppenheimer's a very strange looking man and kind of a terrifying man. And he says, I am become death destroyer of worlds. And he's not quite looking at the camera. He's sort of looking like, into the middle distance, and it is chilling. 
what kind of weirdo, after inventing some uh, terrible world-killing thing, then scours the Bhagavad Gita <laughs> for the appropriately ominous quote to send to his uh, rivals? This was the this was, I think, a time when uh, when a lot of physicists also had read the Bhagavad Gita all the way. Ah, through. he's quoting the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> and nice. Had it, had it memorized, right? Uh, so, you know, the guys like that get all the press clippings, but think about somebody like Midgley, who most people have probably never heard of, you know? Um, and you would never expect that two of the major, major, major environmental pollutants of the 20th century, the effects of which we're still wrestling with, were completely coincidentally invented by this same one chemist. Same bonehead. Yeah. How, how many deaths, really, do you think? I mean, that's astonishing. And, and to think about, like, the effect of these things over the next three centuries. I mean, it's not like that stuff is gone. I mean, if you look at murders alone, uh, you know, the U.S. had between about about around 10,000, around 20,000 murders a year for much of the lead gas era. And, you know, if crime dropped 75 percent without Midgley's help, you know, that guy is killing well, 7,500, 15,000. Yeah, he's killing, you know, over 10,000 people a year for from, 60 years. From 1922 so, to, So yeah. even if you leave aside the the, the kids <laughs> getting sick or whatever, like physically he's murdering, he murdered 600,000 people like with switchblades and, and handguns. That's incredible. Not to mention all the mutated penguins that exist today. <laughs> RIP, yeah. I'm pouring out some fish guts on the curb for my mutated penguins. Well, what's funny is that he recognized in his own time the poisonousness of lead, the toxicity of lead. In fact, they, of course, knew it even as they were building it. Um, and his recuperation from multiple bouts of lead poisoning. Did he ever show any remorse? Or? No, because it all felt, I think, by the standards of their era as a, as a necessary side effect of innovation. Um, they had solved this knocking engine problem without using ethanol, a cheaper and better solution to it. Thank goodness. But he got a pat on the head from all of his bosses and he got all of these medals from various societies and was recognized as an eminent man in his field. Now, the effect of chlorofluorocarbons didn't become evident for much, much longer. And in fact, Midgley did not live long enough to receive the the second wave of approbation for... That he should have. Yeah. So that's the point of this recording, really, to further sully his legacy. Yeah, we need to redress the balance. Um, so Midgley died at a fairly young age, and depending on whether or not you believe in schadenfreude, <laughs> which uh, to our futurelings is a German word for uh, delighting in the comeuppance of someone... Midgley died an untimely and uh, somewhat grotesque death. Grotesque? It's not lead-related? Well, it's not lead-related or chlorofluorocarbon-related at all. He developed polio, which is a terrible disease that now polio is much, much rarer, certainly in, in the Americas, because of vaccines. That's a... That's a Success story of better living through chemistry that we, I guess, should not ignore. That's right. There are a lot of people, I think, that don't believe in vaccines anymore because they mistakenly believe that vaccines cause autism or other And interestingly, be because they might have mercury or some other kind of lead-like contaminant, like Midgley may have created a generation of people skeptical about putting metal in anything. Well, and there are plenty of, like, um, like thalidomide was supposed to be a great chemical and it caused enormous birth, birth defects. So sure. it's still, it's... 
and it's part of the reason why the FDA uh, has such an elaborate process of approving drugs. You can't just come up with a drug and say, it's a cure for nose pimples and rush it to market. Like you have to spend years and years and many, many trials to discover if it's toxic. Thalidomide is actually a good comparison to the anti-knocking problem because it, it was an acne drug, yeah, right? Yeah. So for in the service of cosmetics, whole generation of kids were born without arms and legs. Yeah, a real, a real tough thing. Now, Midgley contracted polio in 1940 before the advent of the polio vaccine. Mm -hmm. And uh, it disabled him as polio once did. But because he was an inventor, an inventive guy. Because he was the worst inventor of his generation. <laughs> he was bedridden as a result of polio, but he invented a system of like ropes and pulleys and other devices, um, sort of like a bed, a hospital bed that you would see if someone was in traction right. that enabled them to be raised and lowered in a way that you know, that didn't require six orderlies to flip them or whatever. So he could hoist different parts of him in and out of bed. Or... Right. Uh, but this had tragic consequences because Midgley's ultimate death came as a result of getting entangled in his own contraption. Oh, no. He became entangled in it and st it strangled him. <laughs> and he died of strangulation at the young age of 55. His work to strangle a generation of America youth in microcosm, in hospital bed form. It's hard, to, it's hard to believe in instant karma, regardless of what John Lennon says. But, I mean, he died believing that he had done more good in the world than bad. But he still received instant pulley justice. Like, crazy to imagine that he would get literally hoisted by his own petard. And that concludes Thomas Midgley, entry 786.ZC0508, certificate number 25185, in the omnibus. I certainly hope that social media does not exist in your era, Futurelinks. It's a blight on our time. But if our Twitter record would be of value to you, you can hope that it's still archived at at Omnibus Project. John and I also individually shared our private observations at at Ken Jennings, and at John Roderick, John also maintained an Instagram account under that same handle. When forced to use email, a popular form of written communication in our day, we were Omnibus Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Future listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our bankrupt and polluted civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, although because of lead poisoning, we may all be insane. We would never even know, perhaps. We don't. I mean, I, you may be a figment of my imagination. I may not even be doing this podcast. I've hallucinated this whole experience after huffing Freon. I could be living in a hospital bed, like, supported by ropes and wires, and like a Metallica song, this is all just happening inside my imagination. Well, be careful with your Jacob's Ladder <laughs> I don't want anything to happen to you. Even if I don't exist, I don't want anything bad to happen to you. Again. All right. Thank you. Uh, if our catastrophe uh, comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if uh, the Lord in the skies or under the ground or buried deep in the timbers of an old home allows us to survive, 
allows you to survive future links. We hope to be back with another entry in the Omnibus.